message. The Bible says in Nehemiah 9, Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to help me now this morning as we get into the passage of Scripture that we're going to preach from here this morning. I pray that you'd be with my mind, Father, be with my mouth. I pray that I'd have the right spirit about this message. I want you to be in control. I pray that you'd give the folks here something that they need, Lord, that'll help them. May we get an honest look at ourselves and a, and a better view of you than we've ever had before. Now, I pray that you'd find in this room today some hearts. Lord, it'd be great if it was every single heart that's willing to get, get what it is you have for them today and to receive it, willing to be tender to you and to submit to you and to your will. Father, help your people this morning, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In this chapter, to be honest with you, i got a really hard message for you. And I want to say that right out of the gate because it's important to me. I've been praying and, and asking the Lord and getting ready for this message. It's important to me to preach a really hard message in a very pastoral way if God will let me do it. I want you to understand from my perspective, if I can try to give you that just a little bit, you have to try to grab a hold of the fact that there's differences in what I do, what I'm called to do, what God has for me to do. There's a difference between, although it's, it's strange because the lines aren't so clearly drawn that it's easy to understand. That's why I feel like I need to explain it. There's a difference between being a preacher and being a pastor. They're not necessarily the same thing. A lot of men are called to preach, but they're not called to pastor. There's a difference between being a pastor and being a preacher. Some men are called to pastor, and pastors are to be apt to teach, and so what their ministry tends to do is it tends to be a little bit more instructive, a little bit more of a teaching style in the way he delivers his messages. But either way, God tells a pastor he's to be apt to teach. But I know a lot of pastors that aren't really preachers per se. Does that make sense? Still called to be a pastor. Still called to get up three times a week and open the Bible and feed God's people. The word pastor in and of itself, I want you to know, like this isn't a dictionary definition, okay? I want to give you a definition that's from my heart on what I see a pastor as being. A pastor is, I think, more a caregiver, When I think of pastor, I think of somebody that wants to feed, that wants to help. Somebody that's praying for you, that actually knows when they get to your name on the list, what they should ask God for on your behalf. Somebody that knows you that well. Somebody that cares about you and cares about your life. Somebody that is committed to you and committed to the work that God's given him to do to say, listen, I'm not just here in the good times. And in the bad times, I'm going to pretend they're not even bad, and I'm going to stay faithful to what God's called me to do and to help you through the good times and the bad times. I'm not just here when you're doing well. I'm not just here when you're pleasing God. I'm not just here when your life looks perfect and there's no problems going on. I am here for the long haul, and I'll stick with you if you'll stick with me and stick with God, then I'll stick with you. A pastor to me is somebody that is there to help you in spite of you and in spite of himself. That's a pastor. That's utterly different than the preacher. It used to be that everybody naturally just called me preacher. Back in the early days, I don't know how many of you remember that, but it was like, hey, preacher, preacher, preacher. And the storefront, and even a couple of years, maybe five years into being in this building, it was preacher. Then with time, it was Pastor Mike. And lately, people, hey, pastor. Man, I'm telling you, something is growing on me. 
It's something that God called me to be. I love being a pastor, but, but you got to understand that at the exact same time, long before God ever made it clear to me that I was a pastor, God was preparing me to be a pastor, but what he did is he called me to preach the word of God. That is what I'm called to do. The preacher, when you just think of it as exclusively a preacher giving you a tough message, that's more like an Old Testament prophet. The guy that just came in and said, thus saith the Lord. If you notice the Old Testament prophets, they were sort of rogue. They were sort of on their own. They were definitely leaders, but oftentimes they were leaders with no followers at all, right? Like the wise Asian saying, he who leads without followers simply takes a walk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in in all honesty, sometimes there are guys that are a leader, but when they're going a certain direction and nobody wants to follow him, it doesn't mean he's not a leader. It means nobody wants to follow him. You understand that? And that would be like the Old Testament prophets. They were the preachers. And then there's the third piece, which is teachers. I'll be honest with you. I don't like school. I've hated it my whole life. I always wind up back in school. I have more school than most people have. It's just been my lot in life. And you know what I don't ever want to be? I don't like teachers. I don't want to, if you're a teacher, I like you. It's not like that. I, I, I just don't, I don't want to be a teacher. And you know what I've begun to realize with time? That's part of the job. Actually, God's made me a teacher. And actually, I enjoy it. You know, God's always right. Even when you think you know you, and God says, that's not what you want, and I'm not giving you what you want because I know what you need, and I love you, and I'm going to give you what you need. God always turns out to be right. You know, he knows you better than you know yourself. Yes. So I'm going to try to preach this message to you on getting right with God. But I want to preach it to you, and I want you to understand before we get into it, I want you to get that I'm preaching this not to beat you down. I don't want people to leave here feeling like, man, every time I go to church, I just feel like so bad about myself. I mean, it's like there's no reprieve. This guy is stinking oppressive in his preaching. But I do want to ask you to consider the fact that we grab a book and we go chapter by chapter through that book, and I have you open and I read the passage, and I try my best to expound to you the passage to teach you the Bible while I'm preaching to you and to apply it to your life. That's the pastor piece of it. Compassionately, it's not me picking the subject matter. The Bible lays out the subject matter. My duty before God and to you is to give you what he says, and that will help you. So you'll notice, if you pay attention, if you're studying it at all, there's literally seasons in the preaching that I don't premeditate. There will be seasons, somebody said it, it hit me back right around COVID or shortly after the whole COVID thing. It was still going on, but we were gathering again. And he stood up and said, listen, I just want to thank God that God has led our pastor to give such comforting messages. In a time like this, I felt so much comfort. And it just hit me like, whoa, that's God, because I am not a very comforting guy. (laughs) I have actually been praying that God will make me more comforting. Because I think people need, I think it makes a good pastor. I think people need comfort. I'm trying, but I noticed that was God. I hadn't even premeditated the sermons. We just got right back into the passage that we had been in before it all hit the fan and kept on going. It's the Spirit of God speaking to God's people through the Word of God, and it's miraculous. Do you know what the message Wednesday night is? Psalm 51. Do you know what that is? That's David's prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. David's getting right with God. That's coming up this Wednesday night. And I had not premeditated that, but I'm just trying to show you that it's God. So can I ask you, please, if the message is too hard or too in your face, can you just accept it as from God and say, listen, preacher's not trying to be an idiot, but this is what God has for us. This is a tough passage of scripture. And here's why it's so tough. It's tough because in your human nature, you don't really want to get right with God. There will be a piece of you that will forever be uncomfortable until you do. But your human nature does not want to submit to anybody or anything. And that includes Almighty God. When people refuse to submit to the authorities that are in their life, refuse God's structure in things, that is indicative of a deeper problem. I will guarantee you that individual will not submit to Almighty God and therefore can't submit to people around them. They'll make the excuse of, oh, they're sinful, they did this wrong, and he's doing that wrong, and she's doing that, and my parents this, and they that, and they'll find all kinds of excuses for why they won't get in line under God doing what they're supposed to do. But the real issue is they're not 
not submitted to God. It's a submission problem, and the flesh doesn't really want to get right with God, although your spirit longs for it, especially if you're saved. If you're lost, your spirit longs to know that your future is secure and that your sins are forgiven and that God Almighty in heaven loves you and wants to fellowship with you and will lead you through this life and take you on into eternity. If you're lost, I guarantee you, your spirit longs for that. You just don't know it because the God of this world that blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, which is the image of Christ, should shine in unto them. But if you're saved, you long for a closer relationship with the Lord unless you're killing that. You have to kill that, that conviction, that desire. You have to numb it. You have to make it die, and you can. In this passage of Scripture, I find it very interesting because they've gone through all the things that God has given them to do. They've, they've been here. They've been here a month now. They've celebrated all the things that the Bible has showed them. They celebrated the Feast of Trumpets on the first day, the Day of Atonement on the tenth day, which is a day when they're getting their sins right. They celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles from the 15th to the 22nd day. And then there's the 23rd day. Go back and I'll show you. It's a day of solemn awareness before God. Go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 23 and let me show you what they've done and where they're at, and how amazing chapter 9 in Nehemiah really is. But you got to understand, leading up to it, what they've done. In Exodus chapter number 23, God had given them instructions, starting in verse number 26. I say Exodus? I meant Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23, and I figured that out when I looked at Exodus 23, and that was not what I wanted. Leviticus chapter 23, please. Sorry about that. Leviticus chapter 23, and start looking at it with me, if you would, in verse 26. Now, here's some instructions that God had given Moses that Israel had not been abiding by for a very long time. Then they have read the scriptures, and they've realized what they've done. They've built the walls. They've reinstituted the tabernacle. And now they're going, you know what? We got our safety. We got our security. We got the breaches, the walls rebuilt, the breaches repaired, the gates up. It's time for us to start getting right with God. So they're doing the things God had told them to do. Look at verse 26. And the Lord said unto Moses, spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. Israel already celebrated that in Nehemiah. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make an atonement for you, before the Lord your God. Now, wait a second. That was back on the 10th. They're making an atonement. Is it fair enough to say that when they did that and they made that atonement, what they're doing is they're making things right with God? They made an atonement for their sins. They had already done that. When we get to Nehemiah chapter number 9, they had already gotten right. They would already confessed. They would already made the atonement. They would already done all these things and observed it religiously like they were told to do. They're getting right already. Look at the next verse, verse 28. And ye shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. Verse 29. For whatsoever soul it shall be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be a Sabbath of rest, and ye shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even. Do you see that? So what have we taught you before? In the Old Testament, a day begins at six o'clock the previous day. We go midnight to midnight, right? But actually, Sunday started at 6 p.m. yesterday, according to a biblical model. And Sunday would go from 6 p.m. yesterday until 6 p.m. tonight. Is that making sense? Well, here's one of the passages that shows you that, right? In verse 32, in the ninth day of the month at even, from even to even, shall ye celebrate your Sabbath. In Genesis, when God created the world, what do you say? The evening and the morning were the first day, right? So God's program is God starts a day in the evening. And then he goes all the way through the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening is the beginning of the next day. Look at verse 33. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month 
shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. You remember how in Nehemiah they created booths? And they lived in the booths, and I told you this was the Feast of Tabernacles, and they were to build booths and live in them for a whole week. They're observing when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and took them through the wilderness. And God's saying, listen, for one week out of the year, I want you to come out of your fancy houses, come out of your comfort zone, build booths, and camp out, have a camp meeting. Camp out for a week and just praise God for what he did for you in the past. Remember where you were and where God's brought you. Take some time to discomfort yourself and observe this thing and recognizing, hey, listen, God took our people through the wilderness. God brought us out of Egypt. Praise God now we're in the land. Hey, it's really good to have a God that's established us and given us all these things. Take some time every year to go back to where you came from and remember what God's done for you and praise him and worship him for his goodness to you. It's all part of making them, reminding them, and getting them to stay right with the Lord and get right with God. So they've done this already in Nehemiah chapter 9. Look at verse 35. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days. So that's the first day of that feast, not of the month. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And on the eighth day, so... The feast is over. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation unto you. Ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. And ye shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be a holy convocation. To offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon this day. Beside the Sabbaths of the Lord and beside your gifts, beside all your vows and beside all your freewill offerings, which ye give unto the Lord, also, in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take unto you the, on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of thick trees, and wills of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. See, that's that Feast of Tabernacles. That's what they did when they made booths in Nehemiah. Remember reading that? You read that stuff and you're like, what's that mean? It's very explanatory when you study your Bible. It makes a lot of sense. Verse 41, And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You know what they hadn't done in years? What God told them to do. For years, Israel had been in captivity. They rejected the preaching of the prophets. They rejected the law of Moses. They rejected everything God had given them. So God sent judgment in and they got carried off into captivity and they got destroyed. And then they got right with God. God brings them back and gives them a chance to rebuild. And they start rebuilding and get the structure ready and the temple worship ready. And then it's time for them to begin, to begin applying the word of God since God gave them a place to gather, gave them a place of safety, gave them a group of people that were serious about what God was doing. And then it was time for them to begin and living what God had told them to do, which they had not been living for a long time. See how merciful God is in this whole process? God's letting them get away with not obeying when they're heading the right direction and they're obeying the step they have. They don't have all the details fully together yet. There's some areas of their life, like I said in the beginning as a pastor, there's areas of their life that isn't right yet. But when God sees them making moves that direction, God begins working miracles for them. And then they come to a point where now they got it all together. The walls are up. The gates are up. The worship is here. And now the Bible's been taught to us. And we see what God says. And we're going to begin acting upon those things. And they're actually doing now some of the minute details of what God has instructed Israel to do. They're really growing and getting it together. And yet, we still have chapter 9. Let's finish up this in Leviticus chapter 23. I want you to see this. Ye shall dwell in the booth seven days. All the days, verse 42, all that are Israelites born shall dwell in the booths, that your generations may know that I have made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. See it? I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. All right, go back over to Nehemiah chapter number 8. Look at the end of Nehemiah 8. Also day by day from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, right? We just saw that, what they were required to do. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. Everything God said, right? A seven-day feast, they did it. 
On the eighth day, a solemn assembly. They did it. They've done everything they need to do to be right with God. It's all done. They were taught by the preachers what they had to do. Their hearts smote them over the truth, and they said, okay, we'll do it. They went, and they go ahead, and they do it, and they go all the way through the whole process, and then they get all the way through the whole process, and here's what really strikes me about somebody that really wants to be right with God. After they've done everything God asked them to do, they're not necessarily pleased with themselves. They're not necessarily done. I believe with all my heart when somebody is sorry, when they're trying to get right with God, that we ought to forgive them. Amen? Do you know that there's ways of determining when somebody really means it and when they don't? You know, I watched this uh, Parkland shooter. Do you know I have zero, zero compassion on him? I'm, I'm, you can judge me as harshly as you want. I'm going to tell you why. I have zero compassion on him. Nothing irritates me more than when I see somebody that does something like that. And they go in there and they massacre kids. One of the little girls' head split open by the bullet that ripped through her skull. Popped her head open. One little boy bent over backwards over the back of his chair in a U-shape with a pool of blood underneath him. Dead bodies of children falling on top of other children. For some evil, demon-possessed guy that just has some kind of a something going on in his soul that's dark as hell itself, walks out of the place, goes to a sandwich shop. Then goes to McDonald's and slides in the booth with some kid at school whose sister he just slaughtered. And then he gets in the podium and says, Judge, it's not up to the jury what happens to me. It's up to you. And I'm just asking you for mercy. I feel horrible. I live with it every day with what I do. You live with it, don't you? You, you live with it? You snuffed out their lives. I live it. You should live with it every day. I live with it every day, and I can't believe. Oh, no, oh, oh, and I, I don't just ask you. I want to survive. I want to do good for people. You lost your chance. Do you know, here's why I have no mercy. Zero. Let me pull the trigger or push the electric button or whatever, push the syringe, and then I'll go to the sandwich shop. And I'll meet my wife for a coffee at McDonald's. You say, why? That's harsh, right? I know that's harsh, but listen to me. Here's why. When somebody is really getting right, they're not defensive of themselves. It is a sign you ain't done and you're not really trying to get right with God when you're making excuses. When you're trying to say, I have to live with it every day. Why are you making yourself the victim? That is not a soul that's genuinely saying, hey, I deserve the electric chair. Hey, listen, judge, jury, I did it. I don't know why we're wasting everybody's time and money. You all have families to go home to. I deserve to die. I'm at the mercy of the court. If you kill me, I deserve it. I want to make amends for what I've done. And that means if I go out, I go out. That man got right. And according to that book, he should still die. God will forgive him, but the blood of the land can't be cleansed but by the blood of the killer, according to that book. You say, why is that illustration so important, preacher? Because when it comes to getting right with God, do you know what a lot of Christians do? I feel so bad. I can't believe what I did. I just really wish. I can't believe it worked out this way. I'm just, I'm just hoping. It's just not fair. Should I forever have to? I said I'm sorry. Mom and dad, when your kids say sorry, have some biblical discernment. They're not done yet. When you say, fine, I forgive you, but give me your phone. You'll see it in two weeks. And they go, they're not done yet. When they say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. And then you don't hear about it for two weeks. 
and you let one day run by and you still don't hear about it. You know what? They really know that they deserve what they got and they're really sorry because they're willing to accept the judgment that's been passed down to them because they know that they're guilty. It's a hard message. I'm trying not to preach it too hard at you. I'm trying to talk to you about getting right with God and I want you to notice I'm going to move fast. I want you to notice in the text some things that you'll see that help you recognize whether or not you really are getting right and what it takes to get right. Notice in verse number 2, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. When somebody's really trying to get right, you know what they do? They separate themselves from what they know to be wrong. It's interesting to me that they're even going through all this rigmarole because in verse number 1 it says, Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, with sackcloth and earth upon them. Wait a second. Every word of God is pure. God wanted you to know that it's the 24th day because the feast ended on the 22nd day, right? It started on the 15th and ended on the 22nd, right? After the 22nd, there was a day of a solemn assembly, right? Guess what? They're free. It's over. Go enjoy yourself. Forget about it. Man, we have been in church for a month. He has been standing and reading in the Bible from early in the morning until lunchtime. We had four hours of him reading from the Bible. We've wept. We've prayed. We've observed it all. We've done it all. We've gotten right with God. So where are the blessings, Lord? Because I got right. No, there's a heart here among God's people of real, true repentance. You know what I find interesting? The seventh day was the end of the feast, right? You know what seven's the number of in your Bible? Perfection. You know what eight's the number of? Because the seventh day after the feast is day eight. And the Bible back there, he said on the eighth day, he shows you that, even though it's not the eighth day of a month. He said, the Bible is so hard to understand the way it's written. It's not that hard. You got, I, I get it. It can be, but you've got to slow down and leave it alone because it's perfect. It's the eighth day, but not the eighth day of the month. You know what eight is the number of? New beginnings. Praise the Lord. I got right. It's all over. It's new beginnings. Now what are you going to do for me, God? Not their attitude. You know what nine's the number of? It's the ninth day since the beginning of the feast, right? You know what nine's the number of in your Bible? Fruitfulness. Do you see what chapter we're in? It's Nehemiah what? <laughs> Are the chapter and verse markings inspired? There's so much more in that book than you can ever, you can ever figure out in an entire lifetime. I wouldn't change chapter and verse markings if it was up to me because I'm afraid of answering to Almighty God for messing up something he was trying to tell him. You really want to become fruitful for God? Because I do. I want our church to be fruitful. I want to get to heaven and find out we were doing so much more than we even knew we were doing. Amen? That fruitfulness comes from a heart of a bunch of people that said, listen, I want to make sure I'm right with God. Hey, I've done all these things, but I really, I'm not done yet, God. I don't feel the fellowship back yet. I know you. The Bible says you've forgiven me. I believe 1 John 1, 9. It says you're faithful and just to forgive. And I know you are. I know you've forgiven me. But I want my fellowship back. I feel a distance between me and you. And I'm not okay with it. And I'm staying here in sackcloth and ashes until I feel that presence back again, till I feel that fellowship again, till I know you're moving in my life, till, man, my prayers are just, I, to 15 minutes, it's, it's only been 15 minutes? Man, I read, I was supposed to read four chapters, I read eight. Man, God gave me an opportunity to witness to somebody. That was amazing. Man, I was just randomly talking about this, that, or the other to the person, and I had no idea what had been going on in their life. That was God. I want that closeness back. Hey, listen, that requires us to get right with God. Because God will fellowship with a man who has sin in his nature, but God will not fellowship with a man who has sin in his heart. What these people are showing you is that, yes, there may be sin in my nature, 
But I want to make sure that everything all the way down deep in my heart is right with God. And they're separating themselves. They're making that step. Listen, I'm not going to take you there for the sake of time. But if you went back and looked at Leviticus chapter 15, when God talks about the, the law of separation, one of the things they were supposed to do, it's supposed to observe, one of the sacrifices they were supposed to observe had to do with natural uncleanness that comes upon a man or a woman because they're human beings in human flesh. Literally stuff that's not even necessarily like, look what you did. It's just literally natural uncleanness because we were born under sinful parents. We were born as sinful human beings. Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. So all this stuff about you being perfect and perfecting your flesh and living up to what you think the standards are, hey, that all misses the mark. Your flesh has nothing good in it. It's the heart that God's after. And people that really want to get right with God, they get that heart right. You notice the Lord said, He said not to leave the other undone, right? It's this modern day Christianity that says I can be right with God while completely being worldly in every way, shape, and form. Me and the world were just like this. There's no difference between me and them. I mean, I can go hang out at the bars. I can hang out at the parties. They're all smoking the dope. I'm not smoking, but I'm hanging out with them. I can just be one of them. I just be just like the world. Hey, that is not Bible. Something's wrong in your heart if you're comfortable around people you used to hang out with before you loved God, before you loved the Bible, before you came to church. Hey, there ought to be a separation that happens. You cannot fellowship what concord hath Christ with Belial. You can't fellowship with God and fellowship with the world. It won't work. That's Leviticus chapter 15. It talks more about it in Leviticus chapter 20. God's talking about the unclean animals. God wanted them to know there's a separation. And then you say, well, that's Old Testament law. There you go. It's preaching Old Testament law. Okay, First, Second Corinthians chapter 6. You know what Paul says? Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I'll receive you. I'll be a father unto you. And you'll be his sons. He's talking to a church. Paul said, what concord hath Christ with Belial? Paul's talking about separation. Listen, separation is not about what you do or don't put on. Separation is in your heart. If you really love Jesus Christ, then how are you going to fellowship with people that think his name is nothing more than a cuss word? How are you going to fellowship with people that don't love him? If you love your Bible and are trying to live for God, hey, how are you going to fellowship with people that hate that book? You got no business, girls, no business dating a guy if he's a stinking liberal and you're not, well, I can get along. No, you won't. Well, we don't believe the same on the King James issue, but he loves Jesus. It ain't going to work. Somebody's going to have to go downhill. And evil communications corrupt good manners. It doesn't work the other way around. I've been against this my whole life. Well, my kids are little derelicts, but your kids are so well-behaved. We really want to bring our kids. Can my kids hang out with your kids? No. Oh, you think you're so much better than us. No, I don't. I think my little wicked sinners will go right downhill with your little wicked sinners. Get them away, man. We're fighting all we can to get ours through. Get your rats off mine. Go be a parent. Don't ask me to parent your kids. Go be a parent. You deal with your issues. This whole concept about putting, putting public school rejects and rebels in Christian schools. I don't care how much tuition money you pay. Get them out of here. Why? Because evil communications corrupt good manners. Oh, see how he is? See, Pastor Reagan doesn't allow people to be sinners. He kicks them out if they're sinning their life. You're exposing your heart. Because I said at the beginning of the message, a pastor is somebody who cares about people even though they have problems. Even though they're not what they ought to be. Even though they have addictions and struggles and temptations and failures, a pastor is somebody that loves them and cares about them when they're trying to move forward for Jesus Christ, even if they're still a train wreck. The difference is separation, you understand? When a church begins condoning it, or an individual within a church, hear me clearly, well, we're all sinners. And, and, and birds of a feather flock together, it's a spiritual thing. They'll gravitate to people that have the same problem that they have. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, we're both sinners. 
every herb of the field, you know, man, I mean, I know I should quit, but, you know, I mean, let's have a Bible study and we'll, when, when, it, when it starts getting like that, when I'm going to start pulling other people down in the assembly because I'm justifying my sin. Hey, he's committing fornication with his father's wife. We all know about it. He's flaunting it in everybody's face. He's proud of it. He doesn't want to get right with God. He's not brokenhearted about what he's done. He expects you to accept his sin and he hides under, you're supposed to forgive me. Don't be judgmental. Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? That's not somebody trying to get right with God. Hey, that kind of thing we are required of God according to the Bible as by the leadership of the Holy Spirit to deal with that and if they don't want to get it right, I'm sorry. You say, that's tough. That's old school. Well, that's Bible. And I'd rather just get back to the old ways like Israel's doing in Nehemiah chapter 9 so that I can have God close. I'd rather have God close in the hundred-something people that we have than 500 people and God gone. The, nothing, nothing sounds worse to me. I'm serious. Nothing sounds worse to me than being stuck in the ministry without God being in it. Nothing sounds worse. There's some separation required if you want to get right with God. And I'm trying to tell you that you need to just step back and say, Lord, is there some areas in my life where I just need to stop? I need to break off my fellowship. I need to break off my communication. It can even be the addiction to your iPhone. I want to read my Bible and pray more. Well, have you checked on your phone to see how much time you spend on average on your phone? You can even look at the list and see how much time you're spending on Fox News and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. And it'll tell you how many hours in your week you're messing around with all that stuff. And then you're wondering why you can't get the fellowship of God back. I'm talking about, say, it doesn't all have to be crack, does it? doesn't all have to be heroin, does it? doesn't all have to be fornication, does it? Isn't there some other things that get in the way of us getting close to God? Yes, sir. Some separation then. But here's the next thing. If you're really wanting to get right with God, separation is associated with getting right because separation shows repentance. Repentance is a turning from to Him. It's a change of mind. But the second thing is seen in verse number 3. And they stood in their place and read in the book of the law their God, in the book of the law of the Lord their God, one-fourth part of the day. When I want to get right with God... I need to separate from things that get between me and God, right? To get closer to God, period. No matter what they are. God, I'll pay whatever price that is. I want you. So I'm willing to break off fellowship. I'm willing to separate. But how do I know I'm separating the right way? I can't emphasize this point enough. To get right with God, you have to have the scriptures. See in verse 3, they stood in their place, and what did they do? And read, have you noticed how much they've been reading in the book of the law throughout this whole thing? You've got to know that book and understand what God says to know you're separating the right way. If I don't know what God wants me to do, how do I know I'm doing the right thing by how I feel? Oh, that's awful slippery. By what I'm told, well, that's awful dangerous. I mean, so, so what are we, Amish? What are we, Mennonites? What, do we got to walk around with rags on our head and robes on our back? Take it however you want. Muslim, Catholic, take it however you want. I'm just showing you it's a religious thing. Right. Hindus, they dress so you know what they are. Yogis, they dress so you, they're separated. Ain't that funny? You know what that is? That's a trick of the devil. He tries to present it like it's the right kind of fruit. But what he does is he weaves into that vine. I am the vine, ye are the branches. Right? You know what the devil did? You know the vine is a tree? You know what he was in when he attempted Eve in the garden? He was in a vine tree. Eve didn't eat the apple no matter what the eye guy thinks. Did you look at your phone? It's an apple with a bite out of it. You think that was accidental? 
That's what the whole world thinks she ate the apple. Because it's like, what is, what is that cartoon, that, that old school Disney thing? She ate the poison apple? Snow White. They, they, they just don't know their Bible. Do you know what she ate? She ate a grape. You know what's funny about that vine? Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he offers you wine. See, drinking's in the Bible. When you take a grape and freshly smash it, the juice that comes out of it's wine. But don't you, know, you know what you got to do with that thing in order to get it fermented? What you're told and warned about all through your Bible? You got to add some yeast to it. Little yeast leaveneth the whole lump. You make it look as close to the real thing as you can, and then you just let it sit and get stagnant for a while. And now you're getting them drunk. Like Noah. He got her to eat the grape. You know what the tree of life is? It's an olive tree. You know where Jesus went? Mount Olives. You know he's coming back? Mount Olives. The tree of life's an olive tree. I didn't show you because we don't have time, but back over there in Leviticus, in the very next chapter, the ninth, the very next chapter, he's talking about pressing that oil and the anointing oil and all the rest. It's olive oil. You really want to get right with God? You've got to be willing to go the extra mile. You've got to be willing to say, I've done everything that I have to do to be basically right with God. But you know what? That's not enough. I want more than just being right with God. I want my fellowship. And how do I know I got it? You've got to get in that book and you've got to know that book. He's reading to them out of the book of the law and they're listening to what God has to say. And I am trying to tell you folks, reading is required. That's what we're doing here this morning. Look at verse number 20. He says, Thou gave us also thy good spirit to instruct them. You know what he's doing in verse, starting back there in verse number 4 and 5 and running all the way down through the end of the chapter. What they're doing is they're, they're, they're reminding God of everything God knows and they're going through all of the history of Israel. How do they even know any of this without the writings of Moses? They're going all the way through the history of Israel and they're pointing out to God how good God is and how bad they've been and how much they've messed up and how wonderful God is. And one of the things that God did for them all the way through to help them get right and to help them stay right is in verse number 20, Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheld us not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. Listen, God Almighty has given you that Bible to instruct you and to help you getting right with God in knowing your Bible and keeping a teachable spirit to say, listen, whatever God says is what matters. I don't care what this world thinks. What does God say? And I am telling you, church, I'm telling you, Christian kids and Christian people, saved people. Hey, listen, Bible-believing saved people. King James Bible-believing saved people. Rightly dividing King James Bible-believing saved people have begun to think that it's wrong for you to preach against sodomy. That is mind-blowing to me. Have we really come that far to think a preacher shouldn't get in a pulpit and say that is wicked and an abomination before? Have we really come that far? I understand it if this world thinks you're crazy. They're brainwashed constantly. Your modern-day Republicans and conservatives are flaming liberals to my grandpa Camerata, who was a Democrat. I get it when a nation falls away from the book. I don't get it when God's people do. If I offend you preaching against homosexuality, then I don't apologize. Your children need some balance in their life. They need to understand what that lifestyle does to people. They need to understand how much it hurts people, how much it hurts the individual. Hey, listen, they need to understand that God made them what they are. And it's not questionable. It's not, well, I feel like I think I am, and I'm going to go chop my body up and get a bunch of drugs dumped into me so I never will be able to have children. I'll forever be messed up and scarred by what's happened to me. Hey, listen, when they're young, they can't even get half of the time. They can't get life half the time. They aren't ready to be making decisions like that. And even when they are ready, it's an abomination to God. Amen. Man shall not put on a woman's garment. 
Woman shall put on a man, shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. That's what God said. That's cross-dressing stuff. Oh, well, nowadays it's like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Even in church? Oh, he's homophobic. I've led homosexuals to Jesus Christ. Discipled them. I don't believe they can't get saved. I don't believe that at all. I believe it's a sin like any other sin that will send them to hell. Just like you're lying and self-righteous religious garbage when you reject Jesus Christ. Reject the Bible. I think it'll send them to hell. But it's still sin, and I'm not going to stop preaching on it. The Scriptures are what you need to get right with God. How do you know you're getting right if you don't have the Scriptures? Look at verse 30. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testifiest against them by thy Spirit, in thy prophets. You know what God does to help you get right? He gives you a church. He gives you a preacher. Have you come in and sit down and God opens up the Bible and there goes the preacher again. Can I say this? I want you to understand something. These folks have never been as right with God as they are in chapter 9. You understand that? They've never been as right with him as they are at this point. And you know what you see in verse number one? With fasting and sackcloth and ashes and earth upon them, they still feel dirty. Here's what I want you to get from that. Sometimes when you get this close to the light, because there's a lot of light in this church. It's that book. I'm not claiming it. I'm telling you that book is a bright light. And when a preacher will soak in that book and then give you that book every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, as faithfully as he can, you got a lot of light in your life. Do you know what happens when you step into the light? You see the dirt. It's not that you're dirtier than you used to be. Actually, you might be closer to God than you've ever been. You might be better off than you've ever been. But the light is shining so brightly that a lot of times you go, man, I leave feeling really bad. Wait, time out. I'm not trying to pull the conviction off of you. What I'm trying to say is, don't always feel so bad. Sometimes recognize it's not because you're so horrible. You're actually doing better than you used to do. It's just that now you're closer to the light, and so God is continuing to try to conform you more into his image, and he's showing you then the things in you that don't look like Jesus. And as you see those things in you that don't look like Jesus and God conforms you more to his image, if you'll accept those things, if you'll say, oh, I see that. Oh, yeah, Lord, you know what? I, I came here for that. I want to be right with you. I see that there's another area of my life. It's not like, oh, I never can do enough. It's like I've already gotten so much right and it's always something else. Yeah, you're not really getting right. You're feeling sorry for yourself. But when your heart really wants the truth and then you come in and the scriptures show you something else, you go, oh my goodness, look at that about me. Hey, listen, God, thanks for showing me. I want to be closer to Jesus. I'm going to work on that area of my life. I love that Bible. Man, it's amazing how that book reads me and figures me out. God, give me more of the scriptures. You want to get right with God? Fall in love with that Bible. Even when the Bible shows you your failures. Accept them. With a tender heart, accept them. And you'll see what God will do in your life. My last point. You're going to get right with God. You've got to learn to entreat the Savior. Look at the end of verse number 5. It says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all the things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. And then he begins to launch in, in verse number 7, to the history that God had between Abraham and Israel. And, and over and over again, he shows that, listen, Israel messed up. Look at verse 16, but... They and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hardened, hearkened not unto thy commandments. So God had done all kinds of great things for them. And then after God does all this great stuff for them and they've grown and they've gotten established just like Israel is in Nehemiah 9, then they turn from God. But look at verse 19. Yet thou and thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. 
In spite of their rebellion, in spite of their sin, in spite of all that God had done for them, they still wander from God, and yet a merciful God shows up. I mean, listen, they're at a point where God's mercy, if he'd have been anything like you and me, it would have run out. But the good thing is God ain't anything like you and me. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy... They murdered his prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee, and they wrought great provocations. They were testifying against them to try to get them right with God. Look at the end of verse 27. And according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. Look down at verse number 31. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. You know what you've got to grab a hold of if you're going to get right with God? You've got to get a hold of the fact that God is unbelievably, unimaginably merciful. Amen. See, it's mercy we've got to get a hold of. Do you understand the definition of that word? If I'm falling down to worship God because He's a merciful God, that means I am guilty. I deserve the chair. I deserve the bullet between the eyes. But I'm falling down at the mercy of the court with no defense. You see that? There's no debate. There's no argumentation. There's no he, she, they, yeah, but, I, I know, but I'm really a good person and I didn't actually mean it and there's a lot of good things about me and I've really been trying. There's none of that. It's full responsibility for who and what I am. What I am, not what I've done. Do you get the difference? A lot of times people get right with God because they've messed up because they wanted to mess up, but now the reaping of what they've sowed is really, really painful and they don't enjoy reaping what they sowed. And so since they're miserable in reaping what they sowed, now they don't want to reap what they sowed anymore, so now I want to get right with God. No, mercy is I am what I am and I deserve what I've gotten and everything I've gotten that I don't like is my own fault and I deserve it and I'm just laying down at the mercy of an almighty God and I'm trusting him. And I'm saying, here I am, Lord. Whatever you do with me, you do. Because I deserve it. Look at the last verse in the chapter. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal into it. You know what he's saying in the context? We're in captivity. Everything you gave us that yields a lot, our captors get to benefit from. God, we're in a mess. And we're in a mess because of our sin. And we're in a mess because of our sin. And that comes all the way back through our fathers. In spite of everything you've done, we have no defense. You've been perfect. We've been a mess. And we're really sorry. And so what we're doing right now is we're making a promise to you that we're going to serve you. You know why that's interesting? They ask for nothing out of them. They're looking for forgiveness. They get nothing guaranteed yet from God. There's no negotiating. There's no deal. God will serve you if you, God, I'm going to give you my life. Please get us out of this. Nope. They said, we're making a seal. We're making a promise because you're a wonderful, merciful God and we're a mess and we got what we deserve and if we stay in this situation, we're glad that you'll be our God. Even if we stay in captivity, If you'll fellowship with us, we'll be thankful we have your help, your presence, your comfort, and your spirit. And we'll accept our punishment as long as your spirit is close to us. We're not looking for anything out of you. We just want you. And that is getting right with God. Let's stand to our feet this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Give you an opportunity to respond if the Lord's speaking to your heart.